Hello and welcome to the Wide Teams Podcast, the podcast for geographically dispersed teams and remote workers. Located on the web at wideteams.com and on Twitter at wideteams. This is episode 76. I'm your host, Avdi Grimm. And today's episode is made possible by Screen Hero. With low lag and an independent mouse pointer for each user, Screen Hero is a screen sharing application built from the ground up for collaboration. Whether you're pair programming, reviewing a website designed with a client, or just helping a distant family member with their computer. Screen Hero makes you a participant instead of a spectator. To try it out for free, visit ScreenHero.com. Joining me today on the show is Z Spencer. Z, thank you for uh, taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Z, why don't you uh, start things off by uh, introducing yourself a little bit? Uh, so my name is Z. Um, I'm currently teaching at Dev Bootcamp in San Francisco to, uh, you know, Increase the amount of Ruby developers who actually care about code cleanliness and, you know, important concepts like testing and that kind of thing. Um, I also do freelance consulting when I'm not, like, working with the, with the boots and uh, mostly working on mentoring teams, uh, sometimes remote, sometimes on site, um, in, you know, craftsmanship and uh, building software effectively. Very cool. So um, tell me a little bit about your history with remote work. So I, I started out uh, doing remote work basically because I wanted to have a little bit more freedom in my travel. Um, I spent three months in Taiwan, and I wanted to make a little bit of money while I was there, um, but I didn't want to work for the really low rate that you know someone living in Taiwan generally gets paid for doing programming because they treat it like a commodity there. And so I picked up a remote client back in the States um, and, you know, spent three months in Taiwan working 10 or so hours a week um, and, or not, yeah, about 10 hours a week and making a reasonable American wage, which makes, basically means you live like a king when you're overseas. Very nice. But after that, uh, I came back to the States, um, did a lot of on-site coaching, mentoring, uh, that kind of thing. And then I went, after I went freelance again, I decided that I really wanted to focus on remote stuff because I like the lifestyle. I like being able to set my own hours, set my own schedule. Um, I like having more control over what, who I work with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's been really nice to be able to just like, uh, choose how I work based upon my own priorities instead of, uh, the priorities of whatever, like employing, employing company I happen to work for at the moment. Right. And for you, what priorities are those? For me, it's mostly, uh, so I, I have a strong belief that Building software and working for someone, uh, if, if I'm working for someone, I'm working for them 100%. Like, if I am doing something for you, like, I am committed to, I'm committed to thinking about your problem, working on your problem, and working through the problem for every minute I bill you, right? It's, I believe it's an ethical thing that if I'm working on your thing, I'm focusing on you. Mm-hmm. And I've often discovered that three in the afternoon or two in the afternoon, like, I, I just can't think straight anymore, right? And uh, if I was in an office and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go and uh, play Xbox for a couple hours and then maybe I'll come back and work on your things or I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to do whatever. That's, that's normally not well accepted. <laughs> right. Uh, so I really like being able to, like, if I'm not mentally there and I feel like I'm wasting my client's time and money, I like to be able to 
take a break and say, I'm not charging you. I'm not thinking about your problem anymore. I'm walking away so that, you know, my subconscious mind can activate and actually solve the problem while I relax. Gotcha. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, that step away or that nap even can, uh, lead to the best advances I've found. Yeah. It's, uh, the shower principle or whatnot. Like yeah. the most, yeah. All the good ideas come to you in the shower. So, so that's like my, my, like my main value is like, I really, I want to make sure what I'm doing is worth doing. And then the other side of it is just like the, a lot of it's freedom. Like I, I can choose if I'm going to, you know, drive up to my parents and work from their house or for a week or two, you know, I can choose if I want to, you know, uh, maybe go spend a week with a friend in somewhere else in the States or whatnot. And, or even I spend a couple weeks in Costa Rica working with uh, a company there doing like teaching and mentoring and then uh, also spent about 10 to 20 hours on my other clients so I could actually do work for people while I'm you know not physically where they are which is nice right right very nice so um I know that you've done a little bit of writing about pair programming and I'm always interested to hear from people that are doing that remotely can you tell me a little bit about your experience with pair programming in general and, and particularly in doing it remotely? Yeah, so um, pair programming I consider one of the hardest soft skills of the programming profession. It's something that is very easy to do poorly. It's easy to um, tune out, lose focus, not pay attention to what's going on, or it's too easy to get too focused and ignore the person sitting next to you who has the solution but doesn't want to like interfere with you. Right. Um, so I find a, a lot of the value in uh, a lot of the, the practices that I use while pairing is this uh, the idea of signaling. Like I, if I want to type, I put my hands on my keyboard and generally the person picks up on that and then they back away from the keyboard. And so we kind of like reach the seesaw motion where mm-hmm. like I, I put my hands on the keyboard, type some things, take my hands off the keyboard, they type some things. Um, and it's, it's a very powerful visual signal that happens almost subconsciously. And when you're, Pairing remotely, you don't have that anymore, which makes it, uh, you can't rely on the, the, the visual perception as much, which, which adds another wrinkle that I'm not, I'm not really sure how to work around quite yet. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting point. And I, I have to admit that in a lot of the remote pairing that I've done, I've sort of sidestepped the issue by kind of modifying the format so that there's less back and forth you know so i've done a lot of pairing remote pairing where there's really one primary person at the keyboard the whole time and and one person acting as navigator it's it's true that i haven't done as much pairing remote pairing where there was you know a fast interplay uh switching the keyboard back and forth yeah and that's that's something that i really enjoy about pairing is the the it's almost like a dance where you're you're working on something and someone's like, Oh, I've got this. And like, it's, it's far easier for me to communicate with code than with words most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found that uh, remote pairing, although it can work and I've, I've had several like very successful experiences where we've like paired on stuff together over the, over the web. It just doesn't feel as harmonious as IRL pairing, like where we're yeah. actually sitting like across from a table, like looking into each other's eyes, typing into the code, like, you know, you know, that there's there's that missing connection, which is kind of sad. Right. Now, on the topic of signals, Sam Livingston Gray has a uh, talk that he did about uh, pairing, including a lot of stuff about remote pairing. 
And one thing he does talk about is the mine yours protocol. And it basically, it's just kind of a convention based on two words. Um, and, and a lot of it is, is just like the inflection of the words. So, um, like, you know, you can say when you want to, when you want to take the keyboard, you can say, you can say mine. When you want to pass it off to your pairing partner, you can say yours. And there's, there's kind of a, you know, a questioning inflection of mine, you know, mine to, to indicate that maybe, maybe you've got an idea for what to do next. Or, and there's also like a questioning version of yours, uh, if you're kind of stuck and, and think that maybe they have a better idea. So I think that's kind of interesting. It's not something I've done, but, uh, it seems simple enough to be effective. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I hadn't like heard of that protocol before, but I can see like, I can see instances where something like that has happened, but it's been longer. Like, hey, you want to take the keyboard? Cause I'm really struggling here, right? Like I'll make statements like that. Right. Um, and being able to condense it into like mine, yours, right. yours, like that seems like it'd be very powerful for like uh, decreasing the the friction between like handing off the keyboard. Yeah, yeah, it's something that I, I think about a lot, and it's another thing I've thought about is if you're at the keyboard and in you're maybe you're in a situation like a screen share or something where it's less convenient to hand off control. It's also important just to have signals to make sure that you're both on the same page. And, uh, like for that, I think it's important if you're, if you're the one at the keyboard, it's important to, to be able to say, you know, what do you think about this periodically? Uh, because I think you can, I've, I've, I've heard from people that they were at the keyboard, they were pairing with someone. I think this was actually in person, but they were pairing with someone and they just were feeling nervous because they didn't know, like, what is this person thinking of my code? Do they think I'm too slow or too dumb or something like that? And I think, you know, it's, it's important to get that person that isn't at the keyboard engaged, you know, by, by feeling free to say, you know, what do you think of this? Or what should I do next? Rather than, you know, feeling compelled to entertain them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause I know that some of my, some of my worst pairing experiences are like in person where the person I'm pairing with won't speak up. Right. Like, they, I'll, I'll happily keep coding away because like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm an external thinker. Um, I tend to like, I'll type stuff out and then I'll delete it. I'll type stuff out, delete it, type stuff out, delete it. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll, I have to get things out into the world before I feel like I've actually understood them. Mm-hmm. And it creates this illusion <laughs> that my, I'm actually making forward progress. Like my pair's like, oh, apparently he's not stuck, but really I'm totally stuck. But I'm I'm trying things out because that's all I really can do. Like I just you know keep hitting things, hitting things, hitting things. I'll run my tests over and over without changing code just because I'm like you know some mm. some kind of movement to make it happen. And right. being able to to query your partner and like being aware of what your partner's state is is, is super super critical to make pairing flow well. Yeah. Now you wrote an article for the Pragmatic Programmer magazine about uh, some of the pairing pitfalls. Is that one of them? Uh, yeah, kind of. It's it's been a like a year, I think, since I wrote that. Yeah, exactly a year now. And I think that I actually didn't put that one in, uh, unless you maybe could consider it like a, a, disposition, a disposition dissonance, right? Where my disposition is assertiveness, and the person I'm pairing with is not assertive at all. They're somebody who likes to be, you know, consulted, but but doesn't want to like impose. So yeah, that's, I would say that is one of the, one of the common pitfalls that people fall into is this, this mismatch in personality and an unwillingness to acknowledge it in mm-hmm. some ways. 
And so they just kind of like, they have a bad pairing experience and they think pairing therefore must be bad, or they just choose to to pair with that person ever again when it could really be solved just by saying, hey, I like to type. I know you have opinions, but you're afraid to share them. We're going to do Pomodoros, and every 25 minutes, we're going to check in, and we're going to talk about things, and I'm going to sit on the keyboard next time, maybe, if that will... Or I'm going to sit on my hands instead of, like, using the keyboard next time, if that will make you more comfortable, like, working with me. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other pitfalls that you identified? The the biggest one I, or I see is uh, what I call a motive mismatch. It's this idea that when I'm pairing with someone, uh, oftentimes I want to just solve the problem, right? Or I want to explore some idea. Or I want to learn what somebody else is te- like, how, what's how somebody else works, you know? And those are three like different motivations that I might have. Um, and sometimes the motivations are at odds with each other. So like I myself might be like, I really want to deeply understand this library, make sure I really get it. And my pair's like, no, I just want to deliver this feature so we can move on to the next one. And and if if you never like discuss like what you want to accomplish in the pairing session or in like the 25 minute like Pomodoro or anything like that, you wind up fighting each other like tooth and nail. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's not like super hardcore. It's just like subtle like twinges of I feel like something's a little off. Like we're not on the same path. We're working on the same problem, but we're not on the same path. And that's that's a huge uh, a huge pairing issue that. Uh, I feel is often resolved simply by having a small conversation. Mm -hmm. You've also written about your remote pairing setup. Uh, Let's get down to nuts and bolts. Can you describe exactly how you set things up to pair with someone remotely? So uh, I have a couple constraints that maybe a few other people don't. Um, When I'm pairing remotely, it's often from you know, a random location. I basically, I've lived out of an Airbnb for the past month. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and my network is generally pretty spotty. The one I'm at now, uh, I can't do video chat because the, it's just so terrible. I love Vim and the command line, so I'm pretty comfortable with that. And so what I wind up doing is I create an SSH tunnel to uh, a remote server, which I use uh, programmer.com. is a great uh, it's prgmr.com is a great uh, site that allows you to uh, purchase a 512 megs virtual machine for like $4 a month or something ludicrous like that. Hmm. And basically I set that up so that um, it does port forwarding using SSH. So SSH has a ton of really useful features that most most people don't realize exist. So one of them is port forwarding using like the hyphen R option when I connect to a server. Another is using the authorized keys file to execute a command upon um, a certain key, a certain uh, RSA key being used to log into the server. And another one is the uh, ability to uh, basically chain those together. So what I've wound up doing is on my local machine, or, or sorry, let's start with the server. On the server, um, I have a user called Pair, right? And Pair has uh, an ID, an RSA key that is specific to the the pairing uh, the pairing server that I have. And I have the public key for that on my local machine with um, the, the, the in my authorized keys file set up so it'll actually execute a tmux attach as soon as someone as, as soon as pair SSHs into my machine. Okay. Uh, um, so that basically means if someone's on pair my server and they SSH to me, bam, instant tmux attach. There's no possibility that they would be able to type on my computer without me seeing. Um, and it's just, it's, it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable than, you know, giving them, oh, they're putting their own SSH key on my system. Okay. Um, 
So, so that's like the 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 now, the, the quick question section. At that point, how does your pair server know how to find your machine? Okay, so that's how I use SSH port forwarding. So what I wind up doing is I SSH I from my terminal I SSH hyphen I think it's capital R, um, and then the remote port that I want to forward to my machine. So it basically says if I do hyphen R one three three seven. Then I say the remote server port one three three seven colon and then the remote server's name so like this is pair dot pair with dot spencer dot com colon twenty two so it says forward port one three three seven on pair with dot spencer dot com to my local port twenty two okay so port one three three seven is exposed on the public internet because it's on a public server that's out in the cloud in I think uh, Seattle. I don't, I have no idea where this cloud server is. And so if, if, if I just SSH people to SSH pair with dot zspencer.com colon 1337, they automatically connect to my machine. Okay. So this would work on its own. I would just have to have each person's, um, authorized keys file, or sorry, each person's, uh, public RSA key and add it to my local machine's, um, uh, authorized keys file so that they could just SSH in and be right in. They'd also have to know my username, so they'd have to do like SSH, uh, my local computer's username at pair with that zspencer.com colon one three three seven. Um, which is kind of annoying because my username will change based upon the machine I'm on. Mm-hmm. So what I wound up doing is I created a user on that server that has, uh, just the username pair. And then that authorized key file SSHs into localhost at one three three seven, which basically says, so you connect, so Avdi might SSH pair at pairwith.zspencer.com, it says, okay, I'm actually going to f- create a new SSH connection using the same system that I'm using to tmatch attach, so an authorized keys with command. And that's going to go to my localhost 1337. And if I've already created the tunnel from my machine to pairwith.zspencer.com, uh, then 1337 will be open and forwarding to my local one th- uh, local 22. And it will also be using whichever username that I've chosen. So I actually wind up like, I can, I've got a little script that says, oh, when I create the tunnel, like, modify this so that it uses, uh, ZS2 or whatever username is on whichever computer I'm at. Okay. So the upshot is it's, uh, pretty straightforward. It sounds like for somebody to, uh, set up and pair with you. It's, it's not a lot of setup on their end. Yeah. I mean, uh, the way this works for somebody who's like, uh, somebody like you, for instance, I could literally go to GitHub. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, so if I go to github.com slash your username dot keys, that gives me all of the public keys that you have on GitHub. So that I can then just pull those in and add them to the authorized keys file on my server. And you just have to SSH pair at pair with that and you're in immediately. Like nothing else needed to be done. Nice. Very nice. How long did it take you to come up with that whole setup? Um, <laughs> so my first iteration was, just simply, I had the authorized keys file on my machine, and I just had an SSH tunnel to an extra system. Um, and that was, I, I put that together before I left for, for Taiwan, and it was uh, just, it was a, a couple hours, right? So SSH, you know, you know, doing SSH port forwarding was, you know, how I got around firewalls at school, right? So, you know, that's easy old hat. Um, uh, the authorized keys thing and the command system, like, I didn't figure that stuff out, so I'd actually have to say, hey, use Tmux attach when you SSH into my system. Um, and I'd have to give out my username and that kind of stuff. But one of my buddies, uh, when I was still working with Lean Dog, um, is a 
hardcore Unix hacker. And he's like, oh, that's what you're doing? This is how you could do it without all these steps. And so, like, we <laughs> paired on it. And he, like, showed me, like, the all these things that SSH can do that I never knew about. Um, so it was really, uh, yeah, that's how I wound up getting this all together. All told, I maybe sunk 10 hours into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've considered automating it so that I could actually either open source the automation system or create a software as a service provider so that people could do this like with just adding their GitHub account and then adding a public key to their own machine right. and then done. Um, but you know that takes time and energy that is much higher than just getting the initial system set up. Right. So, like, given this experience, like, what's how how is the uh, state of the art in remote pairing. Are there big improvements that you'd still like to make, uh, or is it working pretty well for you? So, uh, to be honest, I, I try and avoid state of the art <laughs> just because it's, uh, it's, it's generally one of those, those, those edges that you fall off very easily. Um, uh, so in this, for this specific system, the only things I really wish it had different was, um, the ability for multiple keyboard, uh, cursors on my TMUX screen. Okay. I don't want, I don't want multiple people to be like, oh, I'm going to switch to this tab while you're doing this. I want everything to always be on the front page, but I wish that somebody could be like, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm typing away on line 15 and they see an exception or an error on line 12 and they go up and fix line 12 while I'm working on line 15. Like, that would be so wonderful. And I have no idea if you can even do that with Unix. Right. Um, but let's see, what else, what else would I want? What else would I want? So the only other real issue I've had is debugging, like, visual stuff, so CSS, that kind of thing. And I've actually talked a little bit with Evan Light about possibly setting up so that Capybara, uh, save an open page. Like, figure out a way to, like, shove that into Dropbox and make it publicly accessible. Um, I saw so that, that tweet the other day. Yeah, like, he was talking about it, and I'm like, ooh, this is a really good idea, I think we can do this. So that'd be, that would be nice, just so that when I'm doing stuff with Rails, like, I, you know, I don't have to do too much. I do use showoff.io so that I can share mm-hmm. my local like Rails port. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not quite as it's while showoff.io is really good and it works really well, you can't see what I'm seeing, right? I right. Uh, so maybe some hybrid of showoff.io with Adobe's um, what is it, Edge Inspect or whatever their mobile debugging toolkit is might be mm-hmm. useful. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many ways of sort of putting these things together and get a little baffling after a while. Yeah, I have a tendency to like, you know, oh, how does this work? And then like I dive into it and then like never wind up turning it into anything terribly useful. It's always like some <laughs> absurdly complicated process that works perfect 98% of the time, but when it doesn't, everything falls apart and you have no right. idea. Right. I know what you're talking about. I have the same kind of thing with with some of the, my tools for making videos, but uh, fortunately they only have to work for me. So um, I'm actually I'm kind of curious about Dev Bootcamp. I realize this isn't you know completely on topic for the remote work thing, but it's it, you know it's something that you're working on right now. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So Dev Bootcamp is a nine week intensive uh, Ruby course um, and web development course. Um, I hesitate to say Rails because they don't touch Rails until like week seven, mm-hmm. six, something like that. Like I think it's actually seven. Yeah, it's week seven. And it focuses primarily on this idea that if you want to be a good programmer, you must be a good problem solver, right? We we give them problems that we can solve with code, um, and then we give them the, the 
the steps that they can take uh, or the tools that they can add to their tool belt so that they can solve this these problems. It's it's more of a Ruby slash web development school, um, a nine-week intensive training course, right, than it is a Rails school. Um, it Basically, we focus on very small, concrete problems that can be solved with code. And we, at first, we supply them with, you know, oh, here's the tools that you need. Oh, you need to... Um, you need to remove all the social security numbers from uh, a text file full of social security numbers. Like, how would you do that? G-sub mm-hmm. to the rescue, right? And so, like, we, we introduce them to, like, some of the classes and the core building blocks and, like, and give them real, like, problems, like, real things that you can do. And we, we basically guide them on this, this path of ever-increasing in complexity problem and teach them how to solve them with code. And he teach them how to look for things like, oh... I have this problem I don't understand. Um, how, how could I solve this? And instead of the teachers being like, oh, well, you use reduce, we say, hmm, I wonder if there was a way that you could shrink an array from this amount of things to that amount of things. And they're like, I don't know. And they Google around and they look at Stack Overflow and they read the sample code and they come back and they're like, oh, I need reject. And it's like, great. Now they actually know reject and they understand reject and they get reject and they can apply reject in future situations because instead of like, you know, just bringing the water to the horse, we've like said, Hey, there's, there's definitely water here. Here's some words that you can use to maybe help find that water, but you're going to have to find it on your own. And we, we found that this combined with the ever increasing difficulty and challenges, you wind up with relatively uh, solid programmers for in, in a very short period of time. The, the phrase that we use around here is exceptional beginners, like people who are really good at being a beginner, people mm-hmm. who are really good at learning. Beginner's mind. Exactly. Like, beginner's mind is huge. It's something we're ingraining into the, the students every single day. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. Well, see, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, before I let you go, uh, where can people find out more about you and uh, your stuff online? So, uh, as you might have imagined from this call, I talk a lot. And so if you if you want the firing hose or the fire hose, um, my Twitter handle is ZSpencer. Um, if you're more interested in my more profound thoughts, which, you know, come like once a month, right, you can check out my blog, uh, ZEEspencer.com, or you could um, check out uh, the, the podcast that I run called Growing Developers. It's uh, every two weeks we have a Google Hangout where we talk about a specific topic. Um, and actually I don't get, to, I don't talk much on that one at all because I'm too busy taking notes. So it's actually even better for everyone. Hmm. So those are, those are the two places that I would recommend. And that's, that's how you can find me and ask me questions and whatnot. Okay. Well, thanks again. Thank you, Adi. And that is our show for today. I'd like to once again thank our sponsor, Screen Hero, for making this episode possible. Do go check them out at screenhero.com. The Y-Teams podcast is distributed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. Our music is by Giles Bouquet. Until next week, this is Avdi Grimm, signing off. Wow, 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 wow,